0: All right, let's turn to our scripture reading for this morning. We're looking at Revelation chapter 1, verse 9 to 20. Revelation chapter 1, verse 9 to 20. I'll go ahead and read God's word for us. I, John, your brother, and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom, and the patient endurance that are in Jesus, was on the island called Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus And his face was like the sun shining in full strength. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. But he laid his right hand on me, saying, Fear not, I am the first and the last and the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore. And I have the keys of death and Hades. Write, therefore, the things that you have seen, those that are and those that are to take place after this. As for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand, and the seven golden lampstands. The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Uh, Let's pray uh, before we dive into God's word for us this morning. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for your calling us here to worship you, uh, to sing your praises, to confess all that we are before you, and to receive your word of assurance and encouragement, and now to... Receive your revelation. And may we, Lord, hear you uh, from our hearts. Would you give us ears to hear you truly and deeply uh, so that this word would change us, comfort us, and satisfy us. And we ask that you would do this by the power of your spirit who's here to to speak and to teach us. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. We're continuing uh, in our series in the book of Revelation. And we're going over it verse by verse, uh, chapter by chapter. And we've covered the prologue and the greeting. And now we come to the first uh, vision. And in a sense, it's the most important and um, fundamental one, and that is the vision of the Son of Man. Uh, he's a character who appears all throughout the Bible in both the, the Old Testament and the New. It's the name that Jesus used to refer to himself because Jesus Christ is the Son of Man, the one prophesied in the Old Testament, revealed uh, in the New Testament. And John here describes his vision of this Son of Man, uh, which comes from the the Son of Man himself. And so we're going to consider the the identity of the Son of Man, because most of this passage deals with who the Son of Man is. And along with that, we'll also consider what a proper response to the Son of Man ought to be. Now, but before we do that, before we dive into that, I want to make a point that we haven't made in our series so far. That's I think it's still quite important, worth mentioning, and that is the uh, historicity of this letter of this book. Uh, it's helpful to know a thing or two about the the historical reliability of the book that talks about the Son of Man before we get to the Son of Man. Okay, so we'll talk about historicity and then get to the identity of the Son of Man, and then our response to the Son. So historicity, identity, a response. Okay. So number one, historicity. Um, As visually outstanding, at times wild and crazy, and extremely difficult to decipher as this book is, it's important for us to keep in mind that this is written by a real historical person during a real historical period. There's historicity to this. Uh, John mentions in verse 9, that he was on the island called Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. Now, Patmos was a well-known prison island during this time, during the time this letter was written, which was around, most scholars think about mid-90s AD. Uh, this was a real location. Uh, it's sort of like a modern-day equivalent of uh, or ancient equivalent of Guantanamo Bay, maybe only worse. Um, because here, you were if you were sent to Pet mosque, you were there permanently. You're permanently re- relocated to that prison. You're banished for good from society. You're permanently excluded from citizenship. Uh, all your goods, properties confiscated, and you're, you're, for the rest of your life, separated from your loved ones. The only thing the prisoners were able to do was pretty much, uh, other than staying alive in prison, was to send and receive letters. And the, the Apostle Paul often did the same thing. Now, if, you, if you're if you thinking, well, that's that's nice. That's nice of them, right? They get to have pen pals. In um, well, think about why the Romans would allow this. Wouldn't it have been to their advantage uh, to let the churches know, right, as they persecute the church, that not even your apostles are immune from, from, from our control and our persecution, right? Uh, the, the, your greatest leaders, cannot escape our persecution. Uh, it, it would have been actually a more effective way of them suppressing Christianity by letting the apostles write back to the church, and that there is no escape. So letter writing was something that they didn't discourage, but perhaps even encouraged. But here's what we know as we think about this in retrospect, right? coming from now, now that we have the distance of history. John is someone whom the the Romans as well as the Jews and the Pharisees and all the rest, knew for a fact was a close disciple of Jesus, a very close disciple of Jesus, who <laughs> abandoned Jesus during Jesus' most critical hour out of fear for his own life. That's John. And then just days after his, his leader dies, his teacher dies by crucifixion, John suddenly comes out preaching the resurrection of Christ. To the point of holding on to that message to his final dying days on the island of Patmos. And all of this supposedly for a lie that John made up, that he saw the risen Christ. Now, we know that there are uh, religious zealots, even today, uh, who would die for something that they think is true but isn't true. Uh, but do we know of anyone who would die for something they, that they know is a lie? Uh, do we know of anyone who would willingly die for something that they themselves has con- have conjured up as a myth? Because that's what the Romans and the Jewish leaders would have been telling the church, essentially. Uh, John is here on the island of Patmos dying for a lie that he made up. Not only him, along with all the other disciples as well. Not only that, this supposed lie is that Jesus is not only risen, but he is the risen Lord. He is the Son of God. He is to be worshipped as God. And that was something that Jewish people just did not do and still don't do. You don't worship a man that you walked with and ate with and lived with. That's, That's called blasphemy or idolatry. To worship a man who lived on the earth. But just weeks after Jesus is crucified, hundreds of Jews self-identify as worshippers of Jesus the Nazarene, and Christianity as a movement explodes. And supposedly, all because they're defending a lie that they made up. Uh, that does that does right stretch your rationality a bit. Uh, that sounds like quite a leap. Would it could it make more sense that John here is testifying to the risen Christ to his death because he really saw the risen Christ? Along with all the other apostles, including Saul, the, the persecutor of the church, the most famous and effective persecutor of the church overnight became who became the, the most effective missionary for the church. And so therefore, as, as countercultural, as counterintuitive as this would have been for Jews, they they fall on their knees and worship him because they have seen the risen christ it is at least reasonable to say that is a rational explanation for what happened in early christian in the early christian movement and, and it is also reasonable to say the burden of proof is on those who are saying john and all the rest are knowingly dying for something they know is a lie cuz they made it up people don't do that Okay, how was this letter received by the early church? Uh, was, wasn't, wasn't the Book of Revelation just kind of thrown into the canon, thrown into the Bible by some mid-third century, by some emperor who put a council together? Well, no. Um, it was received from the very beginning as a book that came from an apostle who witnessed the risen Christ and therefore has authority to be scripture. They received the Book of Revelation as part of the can- canon from the very beginning, and this is not only because John says in the in the book of Revelation later on that no one is to add to this book or subtract from this book, but also because of what John says in verse 10 in our passage today. If you Look at verse 10. John says, I was in the spirit on the Lord's day, Lord's day being Sunday. That's, that's the day when Christians began to worship regularly, uh, given Saturday worship in the synagogue was not always a welcome uh, place for Christians. And I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet. So I was in the spirit. On the Lord's day, and behind me, a loud voice like a trumpet. These are two allusions to Old Testament scriptures. I was in the spirit, alluding to the Old Testament prophet Ezekiel, who used the same language to identify himself as God's prophet. Loud voice like a trumpet was an allusion to Exodus nineteen, when God descends on Mount Sinai. The same thing is described: a loud voice like the sound of a trumpet. But what is John doing? He's saying, just as Moses spoke, just as Ezekiel spoke, I am speaking to you. This would have been very clear to the Jewish audience who were first receiving this letter. I'm speaking to you as an authoritative prophet, carry of God's message, as an apostle. And this was how it was received very early on. Virtually every New Testament historian agrees this is how the early church in Asia Minor received this letter. As early as 125 A.D., 120, that's like one generation removed from the Apostle John. Papias, Justin Martyr, Irenaeus, Tertullian, Origen, these early church fathers all understood this, the text to be coming from Apostle John and took this letter to be part of the canon. The, the Yale uh, theologian, B.W. Bacon, and Yale is by no means a conservative uh, institution, said there is no book in the entire New Testament whose external attestation can compare with that of Revelation in nearness, clearness, definiteness, and positiveness of state. So, okay, is, is the book of Revelation packed with mystery? Yes. Uh, is this book difficult to interpret because of all the allusions to the Old Testament? Yes. But is there enough historical data, both inside the book and outside Revelation, to make it reasonable to bu- view this book as a historically reliable book? Also, yes. Okay? So, point being, hold on to, yes, hold on to the mystery, but also understand the historicity as well. It's, it's a both and. It's a both and. All right, having said that, let's go on to the second point. Uh, who is the Son of Man? Let's talk about the identity of the Son of Man, starting in verse 12. Uh, verse 12 begins with the seven golden lampstands. Uh, and we know what that represents. You know why? Because verse 20 tells us what it represents. Uh, the seven lampstands are the seven churches. Sometimes, not always, sometimes sometimes. John would tell you literally what the symbol means. Wouldn't it be nice if he just did that for everything? But other times, he would just kind of assume that you're doing your homework and you're making your allusions to the Old Testament. You should be able to figure that out by doing sound theology, according to Scripture. Other times, minor occasions, he will tell you exactly what he means by these symbols or what these symbols signify. Here, the seven golden lampstands represent the seven churches. Now, here's what's fascinating about this. If you look at the Old Testament, especially the book of Numbers chapter 8, you'll see that the Jews have always understood that the light that comes from the lampstand, the lamps inside the tabernacle or the temple, represented the very presence of God. And then in Zechariah, when you look at the seven lampstands in Zechariah, you see that that represents the power of the Spirit of God. And for for the Israelites, both the presence of God and the power of God's Spirit were things reserved for Israelites who worshipped God within God's temple, because a lampstand was found inside the temple. But here, John is saying, as a Jew, as an Israelite, writing to first century Jewish Christians, that the lampstands that used to represent God's presence and the power of His Spirit among Israel in the temple is now the seven churches, And remember that the number seven represents the the whole of something, the fulfillment of something, right? So the seven churches are really the universal church all throughout history, the the whole people of God. But it doesn't just date back to the book of Acts or the gospel. It goes all the way back to Exodus and Genesis. It's all the people of God. There is one people of God, one true, eternal, spiritual Israel. And the church is, therefore, Israel as well. If you look at the Greek translation of the word church, ecclesia, it's the same word used in the Old Testament, kahal, for the assembly or the congregation of God's people before Mount Sinai that experienced the Exodus, called before before God to, to worship him. It's the same word. So John here, as a Jew who's also a Christian, is saying, I am both an Israelite and a member of the church. They're not two separate entities, but one and the same. And that's why the, the Apostle Paul also said, a Jew is not just a Jew outwardly, but inwardly. And writing to the Galatians, the Gentiles, he says, you are the Israel of God. And this means that the true temple, uh, during the, the, the true temple that will be restored during the time between Jesus' first coming and second coming, Right. after its destruction in AD 70, is not some physical building somewhere located in um, Jerusalem. It will not be that. But according to God's word, it is It is already rebuilt through the church. It's you and me. It's, it's the Apostle John. It's the Apostle Paul. The churches that they planted. It's both the Jews and the Gentiles. It's you and me. We have, in other words the presence of God, and the power of his Holy Spirit with us here. We are dwelling in the midst of the seven golden lampstands. As the Apostle Paul also says in 1 Corinthians 6, do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit, whom you have from God? And here we're getting a, a visualization of that, a vision representation of that. And verses 13 to 16 really goes into detail about who is standing behind this, this golden lampstand, and that is the Son of Man. Now, let me just, for the sake of time, give you a list of allusions that are employed in verses 13 to 16, because there's plenty of them. These are all Old Testament allusions. And if you, again, if we don't understand the Old Testament, we cannot understand Revelation. The Son of Man, starting off with that, is someone we have seen in the vision and the prophecy of Daniel. Daniel chapter 7, the prophecy there about the ancient of days. Again, name that Jesus used to refer to himself as well as a divine name. And if you look at Daniel chapter 7, you see similar descriptions of his hair, the hairs of his head, which were white. That's also taken from Daniel chapter 7. The long robe and golden sash around his chest alludes to the Old Testament priesthood, which is to say the Son of Man is the great priest, the great high priest, who will intercede on God's, on behalf of God's people, and as the author of Hebrews says, making the old priesthood obsolete, which is consistent with there being no physical temple anymore, because there will be no more physical priests representing us, because Christ is our one and only and final priest. Now, the eyes that are like flame of fire in our modern mind, right, conjures up something from the Lord of the Rings, right? Uh, and something kind of villainous rather than, you know, something more of a protagonist is more of a scary villain. But in ancient biblical literature, uh, a flame of fire meant something, something different, something pure and purifying, pure and purifying. Uh, in, so it does have both comforting aspects as well as fearsome aspects to it as well. Uh, remember, there's a the fire of, of the burning bush that spoke comfortingly to Moses and encouraged him with the assurance that I will deliver my people out of Egypt. Right? That fire came with comfort, words of comfort. Uh, the pillar of fire that guided the Israelites out of Egypt, protected them from the army of Egyptians, that that fire was also a fire of comfort and protection and guidance. And then there's the fiery judgment upon Sodom and Gomorrah. That wasn't so comforting. Uh, That was to eradicate sin and evil. There's also going to be this uh, judgment of fire uh, that you'll see later on in Revelation chapter 18 where there's this spiritual Babylon that's called a dwelling place of demons and unclean spirits. That doesn't sound so great. That sounds like it's kind of worth eradicating. And the fire of God does that. So in biblical literature, the fire, fiery image, it's both comforting and threatening. It it gives you both comfort and fear at the same time. And then there's the voice like waters and sharp two-edged swords that also come from the Old Testament. Uh, And and these are things that are coming out of the, the mouth of the Son of Man and they're to speak God's pure and righteous judgment. These are how these symbols are used in the Old Testament as well. Pure and righteous judgment. And to the righteous, this voice sounds beautiful. To the unrighteous, this voice sounds threatening. Sounds like it will pierce you, it will penetrate you, it will. It may even destroy you. Okay. There it is. Now, what was John's immediate reaction to all of this? Knowing that this is who Jesus is. He is the Ancient of Days, the Ruler and Judge of the World. Eyes like flame of fire, mouth speaking like like there's double edged swords coming out of it. Was it comfort or fear? Verse 17. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. Dead. There's something we have to notice here. For, for one, what John is trying to help us see by putting in scripture, his reaction to this is what our default response to this ought to be as well. There's a normal response to this. The normal response to seeing the Son of Man. And it is not right, a shining glimmer of light just surrounding you, just basking in the sunlight, and you feel all warm and fuzzy. It's more like, I fell at his feet as though dead. That's seeing the Son of Man for who he truly is. Because he's not, Jesus is not just a, A man who lived a very moral life, who was just really woke and (laughs) taught a lot of good things, and then innocently, wrongfully died, and then experienced this amazing thing called the resurrection. He is the Ancient of Days. He is the Holy One who judges the world with the word of His mouth. (laughs) He is the fire in the burning bush. He's he's the one who sent the pillar of fire that protected Israelites. He's the one who sent the fire to Sodom and Gomorrah. He's the one who will send the fire that will burn up the spiritual Babylon full of demons. That's him. The great I am, the almighty. That makes Jesus worthy of our fear. And in the, the biblical sense of the word fear, it includes both being afraid of someone, but also being in awe of someone as well. I like the fear you would feel like if you were actually in the same room with someone very influential, very important. It's both the sense of fear and awe or it's like how I felt when I was uh, when I was visiting the Grand Canyon the first time and I uh, and this is back when I was a teenager, so I foolishly thought it might be okay to stand on the edge of the cliff, which a part ranger Screaming at me informing me that's not a good idea. But there was, for a moment, a sense of fear and awe. A sense of threat and yet comfort, majesty, beauty. John is utterly in fear and in awe of the Lord Jesus. That's what he means when he says, When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. It wasn't warm and fuzzy. It was sobering. And that leads us to this final point about how we ought to respond, the proper response to the Son of Man, given that 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 is his identity. Now, before we get there, though, I want to point out something that really gets me about John's response here. Let me pick on that for a moment. I think if I was in his position, if I was arrested and imprisoned and separated from from my wife and my, my three children for the rest of my life, all of my possession for the rest of my life. That alone would have caused me to fall on, fall at Caesar's feet as though dead and cry to him, have mercy. But John wasn't defeated by Roman persecution. He wasn't defeated by Jewish persecution either. He's defeated by Jesus. He falls at his feet as though dead. Somehow, the people who had control over his circumstances weren't the biggest people in his life. Jesus was. In in John's mind, Jesus was bigger than all those people. Somehow, John wasn't as concerned about what the Romans who could imprison him could do to him for the rest of his life. He was more concerned about what the Ancient of Days could do to him. The one who judges Rome, judges Caesar, all humanity, on all history his eyes of fire his mouth with two-edged swords he was more concerned about Jesus so what is going on here why is this given to us that the church now with the golden seven seven golden lampstands, stands representing the seven churches what is God saying look to Jesus and see that he is bigger than all of your fears bigger than all the people whom you fear and now begin to fear him that's the first and proper response to seeing the son of man it's you it's you fearing him more than you fear all the rest uh, ed welch in his book titled when people are big and god is small great title uh, talks about how much of our, of our problems on a day-to-day basis, relationally, emotionally, mentally even, stem from pe- seeing people as bigger and their opinions as more significant than that of God. He says the following in, in various excerpts I'm going to quote for you. Fear can extend to holding people in all, being controlled or mastered by people, worshiping other people, putting your trust in people, or needing people. We fear people because they can expose and humiliate us. We fear people because they can reject, ridicule, or despise us. We fear people because they can attack, oppress, or threaten us. But these three reasons have one thing in common. They see people as bigger, more powerful and significant than God. And out of the fear that that creates in us, we give other people the power and right to tell us what to feel, think, and do. So he says that we can be rather uh, concerned about looking stupid in front of other people, and yet have zero concern about appearing or acting sinfully before God. And on the flip side of that same coin, we can see the approval coming from people to be truly gospel good news. And the approval that we get from our gracious Lord and Savior who forfeited his life so that we would gain ours, that doesn't seem so gospel to us anymore. So Welch goes on to say, It is possible that even our modern day of talking about our needs that Jesus can meet for us, we can, we can infuse more psychological ideas than scriptural ideas. Uh, psycho- psychological ideas like, oh, Jesus meets my needs and makes me happy, feel good about myself, and forget who he truly is. And so he says our, our, our use of the term need is ambiguous. Its it, it range of meaning extends all the way to selfish desires. And so we have to understand that there will be some situations where we we should say that Jesus does not meet our needs, but rather he seeks to change our needs, the sense of what we think we need. Because to look to Jesus to meet our selfish psychological needs is, in a sense, to Christianize our lusts, he says. We're asking God to give us what we want so we can feel better about ourselves or so we can have more happiness, but not holiness. Okay, what's Welch's point here? that the greatest need that the scripture speaks to us about is our need to restore the proper fear of God in our hearts because of his holiness and because of our lack of holiness. And it's the, it's the improper fear of people and the lack of fear of God that causes us to malfunction That the, on a day-to-day basis that trap us in our constant worry and anxiety about what people think about us, how they evaluate us, and make us overly self-critical. Overly identifying with our performance as if that's the sum of our identity. I am what I do and I'm what I fail to do. This is what keeps us in constant fear. From fear to fear. That's what looking to people does to us. We go from fear to fear and more fear. But strangely, it is also when we return to this proper fear of God that we receive the greatest comfort and peace. The fear of God removes all fears. It's when we fear God most that we become most fearless. It's sort of like how those people who have the proper fear of gravity can truly appreciate the joy and thrill of skydiving. The proper fear of God, in a strange way, draws us closer to himself and fearlessly, causes us to fearlessly leap back into the world. To take that dive. The fear of God removes the grip that the fear of man has on us. Because he is the one. Christ is the one who is most fearsome. And if we have the fear of him and see him as bigger than all the rest, then other people will seem smaller. He is the one who spoke through the burning bush. He is the one who sent the pillar of fire. He's the one who judged Sodom and Gomorrah. He's the one who will judge spiritual Babylon from his own lips. And yet, and yet, what has he done for us, the church? Was he not the one consumed in the fiery judgment of God? Was he not the one who fell on the sword that we should have fallen upon for our own sins? He made himself, didn't he? The substitutionary sacrifice on our behalf on the cross. The one who consumes our fear. And makes us fearless. So we can go from fear, not to more fear. but Fear to love. Fear to love. What is the immediate, instantaneous word that comes from Jesus as John falls at his feet? In fear. But he laid his right hand on me saying... Fear not. Fear not. That's his message to John. That's his message to the church, the people who see Jesus for who he really is. The ancient of days, the ruler and judge of the world, the king of kings and lord of lords, the great I am. He's saying to you, fear not. And if you understand who is saying that to you, what do you have to fear? If the ancient of days says, fear not, then whom shall we fear? What do we have to fear if you remember these words in verses 17 and 18? I am the first and the last and the living one. I died and behold, I am alive forever and I have the keys of death and Hades. In other words, I rule history. I rule over life and death. I am the great I am and I am saying to you, fear Not. That's why you are to fear not. Because of who is speaking. Consider who is speaking. And fear him, and by fearing him, become fearless. And this then leads to the the next response that John gives that follows, should follow, naturally, in verse 19. Therefore, what? Write. Write, therefore, the things that you have seen given that you fear me now and there's no fear of people in you, go on my mission to the world. Right therefore, go speak to the church. Comfort them. Encourage them. In fact, do that for the world. You don't need people now to satisfy your lack of self-worth. So go to people now rather than being needy to meet their needs. To love them rather than to to be loved by them. Because now you're not defined by them and their valuation of you. You're defined by the Son of Man, And who who he says you are. This is the second part of our response. It's going on God's mission to the world. Now that we are not on people's mission, out of the fear of people, we can go on God's mission for the fear of God, and the awe of God, and the love of God love for the one who turned his eye of judgment upon himself and rather than piercing us with his words of judgment himself became pierced we can love him as we fear him and serve him what might that look like in the in the most everyday kind of practical level does john give us anything practical in this book Yes, he does. In in verse 9 today, he gives us something extremely helpful and practical. Look back on verse 9. He says, I, John, your brother and partner, in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus. Okay. With the fear of God and the awe of God, We are to now practice patient endurance in the here and now in the midst of tribulation. And by this, we partner with the saints of yesterday, today, and tomorrow. Our patient endurance in this already not yet world filled with sin and brokenness and tribulation with a timer is the evidence of our partnership and belonging in the kingdom of God that is to come. Isn't that interesting? It's patient endurance. So consider this with me in your own mind. When was the last time you displayed patient endurance in tribulation? When was the last time you chose patient endurance over vocalizing your complaints? When was the last time you fought for thanksgiving and, that, and, and as you give thanks, remain patient and enduring as opposed to grumbling in your suffering? When was the last time you were more gracious than you were critical, prayed more rather than gossiping, forgiving rather than condemning? When was the last time you have displayed patient endurance? And And this is so important. It's not because you're better than others. It's not to prove somehow that you're more mature than others, but to be reminded that you belong in the kingdom of God. Because people who belong in the kingdom of God have the strength now to patiently endure through anything. This is the simple and and profound application. Even in the midst of trial and tribulation, the call is to strive for patient endurance in light of what we just heard about, the identity of the Son of Man. Patient endurance. And again, what is it that fuels it? The fear of God. The proper fear of God that is greater than our our fear of people. The fear of God that leads to the love of God, that leads to the love of neighbor. So that we would turn to our neighbors, not as needy individuals, but as need meeting individuals. As people who are forgiven, beloved, validated, approved already. Here's a final quote from Ed Welch I'll, I'll close with. He says, what does the fear of the Lord look like? It looks like loving good and hating evil. The fear of the Lord is to hate evil. It looks like trusting God, which is reverence, and obeying him. Can you see that the fear of the Lord is a blessing? Just imagine what it would look like to truly hate sin, first our own, then the sins of others, as it says in Matthew 7. What would happen to marital fights? They would be almost impossible. Spouses will be too busy listening and asking for forgiveness for their own selfishness. What about little cliques in the schoolyard? They will be telling good stories about somebody else. What about when someone sins against us? We will no longer have to murder that person in our own hearts. Instead, we could cover the sin in humility and love. Or we could confront that person in the same spirit of humility and love. Can you see that the fear of the Lord is a blessing? And, and can others see that in you, that you love good and hate evil, starting with the evil in yourself? The answer is yes, you, you can. You really can. You can't fear the Lord, you can see that as a blessing. And let that translate into you being a blessing to others as you love good and hate evil according to God's definition because you fear Him. And that will enable you to become a kingdom citizen, representing his kingdom, even now on this side, this side of the kingdom. So the invitation is to turn your eyes upon Jesus and to look full in his wonderful face, as the song says. And the fear of man will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. Let's pray. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for revealing to us through your word once again and through the vision of John who the Son of Man is, who he truly is. And I pray for those of us, myself included, who have had a too small of a view of him. Would you open our eyes to see him as who he truly is, the Ancient of Days, the Great I Am, the Almighty. And let that fear magnify our gratitude, our all of what he has accomplished for us on the cross, his eye of judgment turning upon himself, the words of judgment speaking against himself, so we will be vindicated, declared innocent, and validated and approved, and that we will find all of these things in Jesus Christ. Help us to consider that to be the best gospel, and help us to live in this fear of God and the love of God that frees us from the fear people. And let that translate into the way that we practice patient endurance in our everyday lives, starting with the people closest to us, the places that, that you have placed us in. Help us to see these places as mission fields where we meet the needs of others because you are the one who meets ours. We ask all of these things in the merciful and mighty name of Jesus. Amen.